Welcome to Fox Sports and the Jabo Podcast. Here are your hosts, Rob Nyer and CJ Nitkowski. And this indeed is the Jabo Podcast. I'm CJ Nitkowski and happy to be joined by Rob Nyer and happy that we are back. We took a little bit of a vacation hiatus as we celebrated the holidays. And Rob, I'm going to say that it was a well-deserved hiatus. It is nice to get a little bit of time and spend with your family. We, uh, we work a lot. And taking a little bit of time off for holidays, I was okay with it. I hope you're okay with it. I hope our listeners uh, were okay with it. But real quick, before we get started, get into the Hall of Fame today. Of course, we're going to cover, we're going to get into the Kansas City Royals and the signing of Alex Gordon and what that means to the Royals and, and maybe preview them a little bit in 2016. But wanted to ask you real quick about your holidays. How was Christmas? How was New Year's? I hope you got a little bit of R&R relaxation time before we got it going again on the Jumbo Podcast. I did, although I have to say, a week without podcasting feels very strange. There was this <laughs> odd void. There was one day when I thought, wait a second, what happened this week? And then I remembered, oh, we're just taking the week off. Um, it was good. I, we spent a few days with the the baby uh, visiting my mother in uh, a suburb north of, of Denver and uh, actually had a white Christmas, which was which was fun for me. We don't get those in Portland very often. So it was good to be there. New Year's, not as much fun because uh, our dog is utterly terrified by loud noises, in particular mm-hmm. fireworks. Oh. And the occasional uh, gunshot, which we have in our neighborhood too, but more often fireworks. And uh, uh, from about, um, oh, 11.45 until 1.15, New Year's was uh, not a great deal of fun in our in our house. Oh, my. That's a long time for fireworks. Yeah. And yeah. that can be an absolute disaster for dogs. We get the same thing with our little guy. Our little pug. Uh, we get the occasional gunshot, which scares us around here. We'll kind of look at each other um, because we're kind of, you know, we're not, I don't want to say we're in rural Georgia, but I'm a good 45 minutes outside of Atlanta and we're in the country a little bit. And so we get the, the wayward gunshot, some some hunters that I'm pretty sure are hunting on land. They're not supposed to be. But, yeah, we hear that a little bit, too. And our dog uh, definitely does not enjoy that at all. But from the Jabo podcast standpoint, this is a good time because we're taping this the day after the Hall of Fame the 2016 Hall of Fame class has been announced. And really not a surprise for me if uh, you followed the trends and see what was going on with the public ballots. It looked like it was going to be Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza as the only two that were getting in. And that is exactly how it went down. Ken Griffey Jr., 437 votes of the 440 that were cast. He sets the record, the highest percentage ever, 99.3%. Beats Tom Seaver's record of 98.8%. But I'm left disappointed, Rob. And I'm curious... How you feel about this as a baseball writer, three short, three guys out there. I don't want to shame guys. Maybe that's not the right thing, but I like round numbers. And Ken Griffey Jr. for sure was a first ballot Hall of Famer. Nobody doubted it. But three people thought, I'm not going to vote for him this year. Should we be upset about it? Should we care? Uh, Griffey didn't seem to care that much, but I thought for sure we had a chance at 100%. It didn't happen. Does it matter? Well, uh, I I don't always succeed in this goal, but I do have a – a general goal of not telling people how they should feel about things because it's sort of pointless and we all have our own uh, uh, hang-ups and emotions and we care about the things we care about. I personally couldn't care less whether someone is unanimous or not. It's never happened, as you said. Um, nobody talk, Nobody cares later. I mean, you mentioned Tom Seaver. I'd forgotten Tom Seaver had the record. I thought it was... Um, I thought it was George Brett or Cal Ripken. So uh, the fact that it was Tom Seaver, and I didn't even know that, suggests that I haven't paid any attention to it, and I suspect most people wouldn't have known that either. All anybody really cares about, if, if at all, 
first of all, most people all they care about is are you in the Hall of Fame or not, <laughs> and then and then there's that su- that subcategory of first ballot, <clears throat> excuse me, Hall of Famers. I guess people care about that. I know that's something people talk about, but in terms of who has the record or whether they're unanimous, um, it doesn't bother me. And I, I think that uh, look, if I had a ballot. I would have voted for Griffey, I'm fairly sure, because there weren't 11 candidates I was wildly enthusiastic about, okay? But there are a lot of voters who wanted to vote for more than 10. And if you want to vote for more than 10, and you know, with (laughs) metaphysical certitude that Griffey's going to be elected, I don't have a problem with a voter... Uh, leaving him off the ballot. Obviously, three only three guys did it, so it's not. This isn't a sentiment shared by many, but uh, I don't have a problem with it. Vote for the vote for the ten, ten the other ten guys that you absolutely think must be in the Hall of Fame. Um, I, I get it. Yeah, and I tell you, the guys. If you look at the list, Mike Messina ended up finishing tenth. Edgar Martinez ninth. Barry Bonds eighth. Clemens seventh. So you start to look at the bottom guys, and you say, if you're a person that believes or a voter believes that they all deserve to be in. I get that. That makes sense. Number 11 was Alan Trammell. Number 12 was Lee Smith. Alan Trammell falls off the ballot now. 180 votes for him, just under 41%. That was his 15th year. He's done. Lee Smith has one more year. So I guess that's where the conversation is somewhat fair. And I wanted to see him get it, but I get that part of it. And so then we go to the next step of that, which is, should there be that 10 limit? Right There's the question for a lot of voters that seem to struggle with it. It seems like the process is getting more and more difficult. Uh, do you like the idea uh, of going beyond 10 and just leaving it open? Or, or should we be limiting voters to make sure that this is, thing's not getting too big and, and more guys are getting in that don't deserve it? You know what? I, I can see both the arguments. And a lot of the Hall of Fame voters get incredibly worked up about this. And the reason they get worked up about it, I think, again, I shouldn't try to read their minds, but I, I think it's because that limit makes their life so difficult for that hour or day or weekend or whatever when they're when they're trying to come up with the 10 names. And if you're Jason Stark or or Ken Rosenthal or whomever and you you sincerely believe that there are 13 names on that ballot that deserve it, I can understand why that's difficult. But look, life's about choices. And I can't say this with metaphysical metaphysical but I I believe that if I did have a ballot, I would be okay with the the limit. Um, Uh It it forced me to make a choice, and I think that's good. That's a good exercise. You know, it's easy to just go in and say, yeah, 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 without thinking about it for too long. But um, I think that the the limit, it forces at least a conscientious voter to work a little harder at it, Uh to study a little longer. Um, Instead of just assuming that, say, Lee Smith, belongs in the Hall of Fame because he's number three on the all-time saves list or whatever. Um, you've got to go a little, work a little harder at it. I think that's okay. Um, frankly, before I lifted it to 12 or, or, or took the limit away completely, I might drop it to eight. I don't know. Mm. Um, make the people <laughs> that would make it inter- <laughs> that would make things really interesting yes, uh, if you went down that path where you actually limited it because you have the camp that believes that the Hall of Fame should be more exclusive. <clears throat> And as we start having the conversations about guys like uh, Tim Raines, and if he gets in and it sounds like he's going to get in on his last year next year, uh, based on what happened this year, 
then you're going to start going back in history and say, well, should this guy have gotten into that? I think whatever the borderline guys start to get in, the conversation really gets opened up about is this thing being uh, – is it too broad? So that that part of it is interesting. Some history here for Ken Griffey Jr., not just the fact that he's got the highest percentage ever, but he becomes the first number one overall draft pick to get into the Hall of Fame. He won't be the last because Chipper Jones – will be going to the Hall of Fame in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. So Jeff, uh, Griffey the first, Chipper Jones will be the second, unfortunately, for Alex Rodriguez. Um, not Probably not going to the Hall of Fame. He does have the highest B-War, if you like using oh, he, war he's as going. any kind of standard. You he'll think he's the, going? He'll be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you're so Bonds, Clemens, and A-Rod will all be in the Hall of Fame for you? Absolutely. They Really? They, Talk, enlighten me, because I feel like there's no chance for any of those guys. Um, well... Look, um, it's funny, for those who don't know, who, who well, nobody could know this except our producer, um, CJ and I talk about, what we're, we talk about our, our, our topics before we start recording, and we were going to say Bonds and Clemens for the end, but I think... Uh, oh, that's just, right. No, we'll, let's do it now. Well, once um, you said A-Rod, you, got, you threw me I off. know, you're and right. I got it's, completely it's natural, stunned when you told me A-Rod's a Hall of Famer. It's a natural progression, and one of the things yes. we try to do is be conversational. I think it's more huh. fun this way, and this is where the conversation led us, so we'll do this now. I think. It, look, I think ultimately, and I've said this since basically day one of this controversy, mm-hmm. um, which has now lasted for some years, ultimately, it won't seem like a Hall of Fame without the best players of the era. The, you could make an argument, I think, haven't tried this lately, but I, I, you could make an argument, I believe, that the three best players from the period, say, 1985 to, I don't know, 2005, or no, 2010, a 25-year period, basically, a quarter of a century, the three best players were Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Alex Rodriguez. And... I don't. I believe that the Hall of Fame will will will, will be seen as illegitimate, far more Ill, illegitimate than anyone has ever considered it. If say in twenty years, those three are not in the Hall of Fame. Now I don't know if it's going to happen. When it's going to happen, uh, I, I don't know if Bonds and Clemens will be elected by the BBWAA. I wrote about that in my latest column. Um, I think that they might well be, but I also think it's incredibly unpredictable. Um, That's interesting. What's going to happen in their their next six years? I believe it's six years of eligibility. Um, but for a Rod, we're now talking for just BBWA wise. We're talking fifteen or sixteen years down the or seventeen years down the road. A lot of people's minds and attitudes are going to change in the next seventeen years. I mean, not to throw this completely off the rails, but look where same-sex marriage has gone in the last 10 years. If you had said that this would happen 10 years ago, people would have thought you were crazy. There's no way that the country could change, or at least big parts of it could change that quickly. It did. Um, I'm not saying these are equivalent, but I'm just saying that attitudes about morality can change, and they can change quicker than we expect. Yeah, I agree with you with that. I mean, I guess, you know, you think about people, you know, kind of softening their stance on things. And I do believe that as we kind of get further away from this, um, that, you know, that's certainly something that could happen. I guess I'm just I'm surprised. But, you know, at the same time, you think about it that way. It's a possibility. I I think we see it a little bit. I know it ever brings up, um, you know, really the Tim Rain stuff and what was the Pittsburgh drug trials and and the cocaine uh, use. We never hear about that. And and so maybe people will soften their stance on these kind of things. There's this too. Um, 
a lot of the most influential baseball writers are now voting for Bonds and Clemens. Mm-hmm. Okay, Ken Rosenthal being one of them. For the first time this, this year, he voted for them. And he said for years, every time somebody asks him, he says, I can't vote for these guys now, but I'm keeping an open mind. I never really understood his reasoning for why he wasn't voting for them, but uh, he would always say, I'm keeping an open mind. Well, it turns out he did have an open mind. He did change his mind. And he, he in a column earlier this week, he, he, he went through the reasoning and for me, it's compelling, his argument. And I think as he and others continue to vote for Bonds and, and Clemens every year and continue to make the case every year because they're going to, other writers will jump on that, will jump on fours. And so I'm absolutely confident that Bonds and Clemens' totals will go up year by year. Whether they get to 75% before their eligibility is up, I don't think we have any way of, 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 of even really taking a, a good guess about that, but I won't be surprised if they're elected while they're eligible. And you know what? If they're not, there are other mechanisms later. You know, uh-huh. the, the various committees that the Hall of Fame keeps. What, what one of those committees will, will elect those guys, and they'll elect A Rod too if he hasn't been elected by the writers. Interesting. I feel like they would have a harder time with those committees, especially the ones that involve former players or current Hall of Famers, guys that are in veterans committee, whatever it may be. Uh, especially, you, you kind of get this sense from guys that once they get in, they want to close the doors behind them. Yeah, a lot but, of times with some of these guys, and uh, using say Frank Thomas as an example, a colleague at Fox, he, he just gets so frustrated and so upset uh, with the guys uh, that did cheat. We saw Roy Halladay not <clears throat> be on a committee, but speaking out about Roger Clemens and being pretty strong in his opinion. He tweeted that out yesterday. Roger actually had a reply to him. Uh, got a little bit ugly. These guys were, were two guys that played together with the Blue Jays in 1998. Um, you know, that's that's another story for another day if you want to go look that up. But, but interesting to see kind of the back and forth between two uh, dominant pitchers of the era. Uh, I don't know. that the, the committee stuff is interesting. I, I feel like it would go the opposite direction. But I guess time will tell. And like well, I said, I definitely agree uh, that over time, stances certainly soften. Yeah, and also, those committees, again, if – the players aren't elected by the writers. They'll have another shot at some point uh-huh. uh, with the committee, with a small committee, probably. I think right now the committees are 12, maybe 16, somewhere in that range. Um, those committees will look different. If, 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 if Clemens and Bonds were before one of those committees now, I'm almost certain they wouldn't be elected. They wouldn't get the requisite 75%. But uh-huh. those committees will, will look a lot different in, say, 15 years. They'll sure. have different younger people on them. They'll have writers like Ken Rosenthal, maybe, or someone like mm-hmm. Ken Rosenthal, um, who already has voted for Bonds and Clemens. They'll have Hall of Famers, yes, but not the same ones that are on there now. Different Hall of Famers. And uh, one thing that, as, as Rosenthal uh, mentioned, and as others have observed, there are players in the Hall of Fame right now who use steroids. Sure. I have no doubt about it. And there will be more. Um, uh-huh. There will be more elected by the writers who we don't know about, but they'll, they will be elected. Well, you know what? I would be willing to bet anything that one of those guys will wind up on one of those committees at some point. So um, those committees will be a lot different than they are now. They'll have uh-huh. different attitudes. Um, again, I just think that I'll be very surprised if 25 years from now, all three guys aren't in. 
That's really interesting. I think the expansion era, right, is the one where they probably have right. the best chance. That's from 1973 and on. Uh, that consists of 16 members. It's National Baseball Hall of Fame, executives, and veteran media members. Uh, that's an interesting one because uh, I'm thinking about younger players. I don't know about the players' angle because I think even the younger players, like this generation right now of current players, are speaking out. These guys, of course, would not be on. They seem pretty upset about you know what was made of the PED era and, and, PED era and, and the blame that they put on some of the players. We'll see. Uh, it's fascinating to me. I didn't realize that you were you were thinking that this is a possibility for these guys. I, I think it's the other way. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, we will see. History will ultimately decide for us. And the reason and the way that we got on this topic of conversation was talking about the history of Ken Griffey Jr. being the first ever number one overall pick. And I mentioned Chipper and, and A-Rod. And that's how we got kicked off. On the flip side of that, Mike Piazza, who we have not given him his due yet, also set a record for being the lowest draft pick ever selected to the Hall of Fame. And Mike Piazza was a 62nd round draft pick, a pick that no longer exists in Major League Baseball. That round is not there. We only go 40 rounds right now. He was the 1,390th pick. He broke John Smoltz's record as the latest draft pick. Latest round draft pick to get uh, to make it to the Hall of Fame. Smoltz was the 574th pick. Back in 1985, the Mike Piazza story is a fascinating one. When you think about where he came from and the stories about Tommy Lasorda pushing uh, to have him drafted and in a pretty good draft, actually, for the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers that year uh, where they picked up uh, Eric Karros, uh, Jim Poole was in that draft, a couple of other guys, uh, Billy Ashley. Uh, it was a pretty good draft for them, and they did pretty well. But Mike Piazza, thoughts on him getting to the Hall of Fame, taking his fourth year, thought it was a little odd. There was that cloud that was sitting there, which for me did not deserve to be there when the PED conversation came up. It seemed kind of silly. He makes it. He probably doesn't care that he had to wait uh, four years, but it seemed a little bit unjustified to me. But regardless of that, Mike Piazza, now a member of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, almost everyone who isn't perfect has to wait. Um, Ken Griffey Jr. basically has a perfect resume. I mean, Yes, if you want to be a nitpicker, as I have been, you could point out that he really wasn't very good over the last decade of his career, but the career numbers speak for themselves, and of course there's never any overt hint of drug use. Um, and Piazza's not perfect. I mean, the the end of his career wasn't that great. There was some ugliness there a little bit here and there. Um, there was some controversy. Um, his defense was not well regarded in many quarters, although I think that's overblown. And of course, there was the uh, the, the steroid <coughs> um, talk, uh, largely disseminated by Murray Chass. But I'm sure he's not the only writer out there who's, who had his suspicions. Uh, but look, uh, he's in now. It doesn't really matter if it took four years. <coughs> Ultimately, he's a Hall of Famer. That's all that anybody cares about. Greatest hitting catcher of all time. And I had to look something up today. I was just so hopeful that I would find some nugget that I could talk to you about. And mm. lo and behold, I'm looking up CJ Nitkowski on BaseballReference.com, and there's CJ Nitkowski with the Mets in 2001. I look it up. You're traded to the Mets on the 2nd of September, 2001. The very next day, you pitch to Mike Piazza, and <laughs> you pick up your sole win as a New York Met, with any, with any, um, and, and I mean the Yankees, I guess, were your team growing up, but still, it must have been kind of a kick to pitch for the Mets, and and in your very first appearance, get, yeah. what do you remember about that 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 your debut with the Mets? 
Well, I will tell you, for me, I was excited about it. Uh, things were not going well for me in Detroit, and uh, it was definitely time to move on. Uh, and so to get an opportunity now to get traded to the New York Mets and, and a New York team and being a New York guy, even though I grew up a Yankee fan, I was really excited about that opportunity. So that part of it was was really cool for me, a really nice moment. Um, the other thing that happened for me, too, is that we happened to come to Philadelphia, which was nice. This game was on the road at the old vet, which for whatever reason um, – was a was a good ballpark to me, and the handful of times that I pitched there, that was one of the better ballparks for me. Even though it wasn't a really good place to pitch necessarily, but I was excited. There was a lot of optimism for me. I was ready to move on. I felt like I'd gotten kind of a new life, and I remember actually getting there. And uh, sure, I, I kind of go in the tunnel and walking down. And it's funny that you bring up Mike, and this is just pregame, and and Mike kind of saw me. I was like, "Hey, you see, Jim Nikowski's here," which I thought was pretty cool. But I played against him a little bit, but I wasn't even sure if he knew my name or not, or you know, or maybe somebody just told him, "Hey, we got this guy coming here today." But he acted like he kind of knew me and was really friendly, which is always nice, even if you've been around the league, because there are certain stars that aren't like that, keep themselves, could care less about other guys. Um, so that part was pretty cool. I came in. I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, I remember. Letting up a leadoff base hit, Brian Hunter double, yeah, Brian Hunter, who was a teammate of mine in the show, was a double or a single and a stolen base. I can't single remember. to center, that's it. Okay, and I think he remember got second. Finish out the nope. inning and didn't get second. Oh, he didn't. Nope. I could have sworn he was standing on second. I have this vision of him standing on second. So I'm glad he was. Maybe I was so nervous about him when he was at first, thinking yep. he was going to end up on second base. Him knowing that I didn't have that great of a move because we had played together um, for a little while. But you know, typical reliever win. You know, we're losing. Finish out an inning, team comes back, scores, I don't know how many runs, a couple of runs maybe to take the lead, and then you sit there and you kind of walk into a win. So that was kind of nice. It was a good first day for me. Uh, like I said, a point in my career where I was kind of looking forward to uh, opening up a new chapter and maybe getting things started. So that was cool. And I got to throw to him a couple of times. Uh, and the one thing I always say about Mike Piazza and his defense is always the area, right, where people kind of, you know, want to harp on him and talk about it. I, and it was a limited, extremely small sample size, but I had no problem throwing to him. And a lot of times the relationship with your catcher is just as important as his actual skill set because you want to feel confident in him, right? And confident in his game plan if you can get in a flow. And that's part of it. I know I've heard Outlier talking about the defense and talking about how much um, Mike Piazza worked on that defense and was definitely better than people gave him credit for. If you believe in a guy, it's a little bit easier. If you come in and you're not too sure about a guy and he's doing some things that you don't like, maybe not receiving well, then you start to wonder a little bit, and then it kind of gets in your head and, and can mess you up, especially if a guy's not receiving your pitch as well, not holding onto your sinker, your cutter on the corner, that kind of stuff. Uh, but Mike, Mike did a good job. I wasn't, it wasn't nearly as bad as everybody made it. Seam throwing wasn't great, but he absolutely mashed too. And another thing to kind of add to that as far as personal stories go, I faced him when I was with the Braves three years later, and I don't know if this held up or not, but at the time he had hit the second longest home run in Turner Field. Uh, against me, a dead center field, just an absolute bomb uh, that he crushed off of me. So I have that one as well, and I probably have it on video. I probably should <laughs> probably should break that out and see if I can turn it into a, a little video to put on the internet. But those are kind of my two little Mike Piazza stories. Um, what another little interesting side note about him? I know we like to get into the personalities. You don't hear about this stuff a ton. He when he was in Los Angeles, he actually kept a drum kit. Uh, in behind the weight room at Dodger Stadium, there was the weight room, and there was kind of like a little closet area behind him. He had a drum kit back there, and I am a hack as a drummer and an amateur in every sense of the word, but have a drum kit myself and like to play and played in a band in high school and, and all that. And I remember being back there and playing his drums and mentioning it to him later. He goes, "Yeah, man, absolutely." He's like, "That's why they're there uh, for guys to come in and have some fun and blow off some steam." So he's just a great, great guy, well liked, um, really good. Uh, good teammate across the board, and you don't hear anything bad 
uh, about Mike Piazza. So that's certainly a nice thing. And, and the same thing with Ken Griffey Jr. And my last kind of uh, little side story to add to this, which was I thought was pretty interesting. I don't know how familiar you are with the general manager that drafted Ken Griffey Jr., Dick Balderson. Sure. But he was telling the story, and he actually said that the owner at the time of the Seattle Mariners wanted Mike Harkey. Everybody else in baseball operations wanted Ken Griffey Jr., but the owner wanted Mike Harkey. And Harkey ended up going fourth overall, uh, not going to the Hall of Fame, having a nice career, but certainly not Ken Griffey Jr. And so that was kind of, a, kind of an interesting thing uh, when you look back at what happened. And then a year later, he traded, and I remember this one, Jay Buhner for Ken Phelps with the New York Yankees. And there was a Seinfeld episode about this where George Costanza um, starts yelling at, or Frank Costanza, is yelling at George Steinbrenner about that trade, saying, how could you possibly trade Jay Buhner for Ken Phelps? Well, when that trade went down, uh, the GM who drafted Ken Griffey Jr., Dick Baldwin, was fired for trading Ken Phelps for Jay Buhner because the owner really liked Ken Phelps. So just to give you an idea that Mendelssohn owners have been around uh, for a long time and kind of an unfortunate set of circumstances for Dick Balderson, who drafted Ken Griffey Jr., uh, who had to fight his owner to do it, and then ultimately lost the job for adding Jay Buhner for Ken Phelps, which is a trade that definitely worked out really well for the Seattle Mariners. So if you think you want to be a baseball executive, be careful about what ownership group uh, you get involved with because sometimes that can be a pain. But let's move on from the Hall of Fame stuff. Congratulations to both of those guys. Really not a surprise, and both of them certainly deserve it. But the first bit of news that we want to get into is the Royals and Alex Gordon. We thought or we heard no chance Alex Gordon was going back to the Kansas City Royals. And I think at the numbers that were being thrown around early on, about $12 million a year, it wasn't going to happen. But the Royals found a way to get it done, a four-year contract guaranteeing Alex Gordon $72 million. This is good news for the Royals. They needed to add an outfielder. First thoughts about Alex Gordon going back to the Royals. Dave Cameron said that it's a steal. And I, I think that's basically right. I mean, four years and $72 million, uh, which is what? 18. $18 million a year. <clears throat> you know, I'm still, I'm old. I'm old enough that $18 million sounds like a, a, a lot of money when you, I first see the, the number. <clears throat> I have to sort of recalibrate and remember, oh, wait, it's 2016. That's <laughs> nothing. That's that's a three-win player. And you typically can't buy three wins on the open market for... <clears throat> you, that three, three wins on the open market is at least that much. And Gordon's better than that. You know, if he gets back to where he was two years ago, um, he's more like a four or five win player. Um, and you, you could ju- have justified a twenty million dollars a season a year contract more than that, probably. Um, most of the time, teams overpay for free agents. Um, that's that's the, the how the market works. You know, it's the the, the 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 infamous winner's curse. If you win the auction, you paid too much. Mm. The Royals didn't I- pay too much. Yeah, no, they definitely did, and it would work in their favor. A couple things here, uh, but probably the biggest one is that he wanted to come back. He wanted to make it work, right? As a University of Nebraska guy, uh, I guess you can kind of consider him a local in that regard. He wanted to come back, and he wanted to be there. And this was the only organization that he has known throughout his career, and so he was willing to work with the organization for them to make it happen. There's probably there probably was more money out there for him. I have to believe that was the case. And so that's why it comes across as a great value. 
uh, to only have to go four years on outscored. There's a mutual option for a fifth year. Um, that'll be pretty interesting. We'll see how that one plays out. That's at $23 million a year. There's a $4 million uh, buyout if that doesn't happen. Um, but you have to have a player that's willing to do it. And the other thing, and I think we actually will see some of these, and we have uh, this offseason, is that because the money has gotten so high, leaving money on the table in 2015-16 is not what it was even five years ago. Right. And it certainly wasn't what it was 10, 15 years ago. Back to 2000, when you're leaving money on the table, there were significant dollars that were actually, you know, could affect your lifestyle to some degree. That's not necessarily the case anymore if you're talking about 72 to 82. Yeah, $10 million is a lot of money. Uh, but if Alex Gordon wants to stay in Kansas City, uh, if that's where he's most comfortable, then that, those are dollars worth giving up. And that's something that's working in some teams' favor uh, in the sense of trying to keep their guys either they already had or they have a desirable place where a certain player really wants to play. Yeah, and I, look, I've, I've heard people talk about there's a phrase that's, that's popular in, in sports analysis, I think probably mostly on the radio, but life-changing money, right? You probably heard that one. And look, for me, $500,000 is life-changing money for a lot of people. For a lot of people, 50000 is life-changing money. But in the world of sports, $5 million maybe isn't. But you get, when, you, when the numbers get big enough, I think they, st- they, st- they, they, they start to lose their meaning. Um, and not every player, but for some players, $23 million isn't that, isn't really any different than say 19 or $20 million. Mm-hmm. Now, some players just want to get the most they can get. It's an ego thing or a, a confidence thing or whatever. And you know, that, that's just, a, that's human emotion too. But I think in, in Gordon's case, he had other priorities, um, or at least, you know, maybe they were not as important as they would be for some guys, the money part of it. I want to, one thing I want to throw out there, too, with this is that after the Royals won the World Series, I tried to understand what's been the real key to the Royals' success as an organization these last two years. And it's been an amazing story. It's probably the best story in baseball, right? At least in terms of an organization, what they've done. Nobody saw it coming except maybe them. Um, nobody predicted it. Nobody predicted before the 2014 season they would be good, let alone in the World Series. In the t- before the 2015 season, they were they were in third or fourth place on in every projection that I saw, and they win the World Series. So what's going on here? All I could come up with was relationships and 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 patience. And that goes to the front office. It goes to ownership. And I think that when you look at the Alex Gordon signing, it falls right into that that heading. Because, and I wrote about Gordon in my column. But um, when the Royals, when Gordon was struggling, a lot of people thought, and I'm one of them, thought that the Royals mishandled him. Mm-hmm. They were too quick to send him down to Omaha. They were too quick to move him from third base to left field. But all of that worked brilliantly, and at least according to him, he was on board with all of it. Um, and he felt that they were treating him with a great deal of respect, that they cared about him not just as a player, but as a person. And I think that all that has to factor into his willingness to sign for a little less with them. Yeah, I mean, the, they, it's a good organization. Dayton Moore, when you talk about you know relationships and treating people right, 
it's a really strong organization in that sense. Dayton Moore, I had him as a, I guess he was minor league director or assistant GM when I was with the Braves. And he's just a fantastic person, uh, easy guy to root for, a guy that you want to work for, that he cares about the personal side, cares about people. Uh, which brings us to our next topic, which I know you brought up, we, you know, pre-show and said we should, we should cover it. And, and I'm more than happy to talk about it. But Salvador Perez and what he has done for the Kansas City Royals, uh, you talk about value. It doesn't get any more valuable than what Salvador Perez has done. More innings caught, I think, in the history of the game in the last two years than anybody. We know 2014, he set a single-season record as deep as they went in the postseason. Uh, just an absolute warrior behind the plate. He played a few less games, eight less starts, uh, or eight less games last year, about 50 less uh, plate appearances. But just, you know, this guy has been an, a warrior, three-time All-Star uh, from his age 23 to 25 seasons, basically his first three full seasons in the major leagues. Uh, he has been an all-star. He's won the gold glove in each of those years. Unbelievably valuable. Well, after his rookie year, uh, the Kansas City Royals offered him a five-year contract for $7 million. I mean, this sounds like a 1988 contract, maybe even earlier than that. Uh, there's some option years on the back end, three option years at 3.7 uh, five even and six even. There's, it doesn't look like there's even buyouts on the back end of that. So you're looking at another 14.7 that is available. And so the Kansas City Royals could have him uh, for seven years and what is that? $21 million, right? And an AAV of $31 million a year. Well, Jeff Passan of Yahoo Sports had tweeted out that now that Alex Gordon was signed, that the Kansas City Royals now need to take care of their next part of business, piece of business, and redo the Salvador Perez contract. And there had been some talk about it. My response to that was he didn't have to sign that contract. Now, I'm not saying it would be great. If they want to give him more money, I am all for it. Do it. Fantastic. He deserves, I shouldn't say deserve. He's definitely earned it and he's worth more than they're paying him. But that's the reason why you offer these contracts, right? And there have been players that have turned them down. George Springer turned that kind of contract down. David Price wasn't interested when he was in Tampa trying to do something like this. Jose Fernandez is not going to sign uh, a team friendly deal, you know, first year into his career. But Salvador Perez, wanted to get that comfort level, that guarantee that's five years and $7 million. And so he decided to sign that contract. This could take him through his age 29 season, knowing the wear and tear that Salvador Perez is going to have over that time. Seven years, $21 million, $3 million a year. Is there any responsibility on the part of the Kansas City Royals to even entertain the idea of redoing this contract and getting Salvador Perez closer to the dollars that he maybe deserves? Well, <clears throat> I, I think that the definition of deserves is is interesting. Um, there's no reason you couldn't you, you look. If I'm the Royals, the important thing is to gauge Salvador Perez, his attitude, and, and I don't mean to use the word attitude as in a loaded way. Um, his feelings, I'll put it that way. That's a little nicer, probably. Um, you don't want him coming to the ballpark and, and seething with resentment, right? Uh -huh. I mean, that's 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 a problem. Um, you could give Salvador Perez a significant raise each one of those years um, over what he's slated to make, um, percentage-wise, and you still wouldn't even feel it. I mean, you mentioned the deal. It's it's. Um, I mean, twenty seventeen. Three point seven five million. Let's let's bump that up by two million. The Royals wouldn't even notice it. It wouldn't even show up on their bottom line, basically. But it would be a huge percentage increase. I think that's if you're going to rework the deal, that's how you do it. You don't just tear it up um, and pay him what he would get on the open market. That's insane. 
Uh, you can't afford to do that. But can you afford to bump up the, the, the dollar sum and maybe add another year at the back end if Perez wants to do that? For Right now he's scheduled to make $6 million in, in 2019. Um, maybe you give him 8 in 2019 and then offer him another 10 in 2020. I don't know. I think So I think... I don't think you have to do it unless you feel like his performance is going to suffer. I will say this. You mentioned the wear and tear, um, and, and I think the world of Perez, but you look at his on-base percentage, for example, it's literally gone down every year he's been in the majors. It was uh-huh. 280 uh, last season. Uh, his OPS Plus has dropped every year he's been in the majors. Now, I don't know that it'll continue to do that, um, and he did hit 21 home runs last season, which is outstanding for a catcher. Um, but he's slow. He's had an immense workload, when you, especially when you factor in the postseason. Um, and I think you can make a reasonable case that he won't be an outstanding player four or five years from now. We, Of course, we hope that he is. But I wouldn't pay him to be outstanding until I have a better idea of what he's going to look like. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I think that's definitely something that you have to be concerned with, right? I mean, you're you're still a business, and that was kind of my point. Now, listen, if they want to give him money, great, give him money. Don't get me wrong. I would love to see him uh, be able to get that money, but you also are still running a business here, and part of the reason that you sign those contracts and offer them to players is that you're willing to take a little bit of a chance on them. That was $7 million over five years, a big chance for the Kansas City Royals. Even for them, that's probably not uh, a big chance, but if they want to go that route, uh, I think it would be fantastic. Uh, do it for them. Um, but I don't know necessarily if they have to. And I don't think that they should be necessarily even shamed into doing it or being told that they're supposed to do it and do the right things. Because right. when you, you listen, this, when sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Jonathan Singleton, we'll see. You know, it's, when it's, he's not a $10 million deal. Well, I don't know if that's going to work. <laughs> it's not looking that great right now. Right. Matt Moore, everyone was like, what are you doing signing that contract? And then he ends up blowing out his arm. Uh, he signed a you know a very low one. I want to say it was in the twelves, uh, if I'm not mistaken. A left-handed pitcher from the Tampa Bay Rays, a uh, very low contract for a guy who looked like, and he still may, but had a huge bright future. We love his stuff. We love the way the ball comes out of his hand. Obviously, the Tampa Bay Rays do, and so they gave him a five-year, fourteen million dollar contract that has three team options on the back end of it. You, you just never know. So I just I don't like the idea of. It'd be like, okay, well now you have to do this. Listen, it happens, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. But I, I like your point. I think you make a very important one. If for some reason he's moping and it's not working out, he certainly doesn't seem like that kind of guy. But when you see guys making huge money and you know what a contributor you are and you have your ring and you're a huge kind of cog in that wheel, maybe maybe it would bother him a little bit. And it's certainly not a bad idea to ask. But at the same time, you, you sign the dotted line and that's just the way it goes. One way or another, we never teams never ask players to give money back. It right. just it doesn't happen. It never would happen. And so you just you can't unfortunately you just can't be in that position. I just don't like the idea. And even publicly, you know, Jeff here passing, you know, even is it supposed to be any kind of shame tactic and you have to do this. They don't have to do anything. He didn't have to sign that contract. And who knows? Maybe he's not the player he is if he doesn't have the comfort level of knowing that he has a five year contract. Well that's, that's another thing that has to, to come into play. So maybe it was that five for seven that they offered him that they were willing to take that chance with him on that allowed him to be the player that he's been in the last couple of years. Yeah, I I, I really I it, it really bothers me on on some deep level, and I, I don't know why. Maybe I should talk to somebody about this. But it, <laughs> it bothers me when when people start using words like right and wrong in a situation like this. When uh, there is no right and wrong, unless the Royals lied to him somehow, uh-huh. or, you know, coerced him into signing a contract. Basically, they, they they slid a piece of paper in front of him and said, "Look, if you sign this, you will earn twenty one million dollars 
in your 20s. I'm sorry. I can't feel sorry for the guy who signs that piece of paper. I can't right. do it. Not for that reason. Maybe I'll be another reason. But um, and I know he's got family he has to take care of back home. Most of these guys do anyway. You hear about that. But $21 million, even after taxes, is an awful lot of money. And nobody forced him to sign it. Now, it might make perfect sense. It might be perfectly intelligent at organizationally to, to go to him and say, you know what? You've been a tremendous player for us. We love what you do. We love everything about your performance and, and your presence in the clubhouse. We want to make you happy or happier than you already are. Tremendous. But I agree with you. The, sh- the, the shaming, the notion that they have to do it or there's something wrong with them, I just it bothers me. It really does. Yeah, and the one thing Jeff had said too, he said, you know, he said to me, well, as a player, you should know that teams will take advantage of players. Guaranteed seven million with a chance to make twenty-one when you have one year in the big leagues is not taking advantage of a player. It's offering him an opportunity to take some of the pressure off, to let them know we believe in you. You're still two years away from being arbitration eligible. That's not taking advantage of a player. That's offering him an opportunity and one that he can say no to, just like George Springer did, just like a lot of other guys have in the past. It's not an easy thing to do. Some guys are built that way where they'll bet on themselves and say, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, George Springer turned down his deal while he was in the minor leagues, and he did not get a September call-up most likely because of it. That's nonsense. That's the kind of stuff that probably shouldn't happen. But uh, nevertheless, they were not taking advantage of him. They offered him an opportunity uh, for a kid who signed for $65,000 out of Venezuela. $7 million is a ton of money. So I don't like that part. Let's wrap it up on the Royals. We'll real quick and we'll get going. What about the rest of their offseason? They needed two outfielders. They got one. Uh, when we look at this team and talking about, you know, okay, could they expand on the Perez contract? Dollars-wise, they're over uh, where they ever have been. I, I use roster resource for the salary numbers. They're not always accurate. It's very difficult, but they're looking at about a $127 million payroll right now. They opened up last year at 113 That obviously went a little bit higher with the additions that they had uh, over the course of the year. Looking at the roster, second base, Omar Infante, right field right now, probably Gerard Dyson. Is that going to be good enough for this team to try to repeat? <clears throat> I think so. I don't think that they're they're worse now than they were uh, last season, and, and that might be good enough. It might not be. I, I mean, you, you can't just assume you're going to win 90-plus games every year when you just because you keep the same team or almost the same team. They, they'll be as good in right field as they were la- last year. They were terrible in right field. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rios was awful when he played. So I, I don't know that Dyson is the answer. I think a Dyson, a platoon with Dyson and somebody else could be pretty good. Dyson's a pretty good player. He's not great. He's not much of a hitter, but he makes up for a lot of that with his defense. I mean, Gordon and Kane and Dyson in the outfield, are you kidding me? That's one of the greatest defensive outfields of all time. It's fun to pitch, for sure. And you have no problem giving up fly balls and letting guys hit into the outfield. That. That part is certainly nice. What about the starting rotation real quick? I, I wondered when you even start to look at how they compare to the rest of their division, where that rotation really ranks. Thinking about the Cleveland Indians, top three, pretty good, and Kluber, Carrasco, Salazar. The Detroit Tigers, I thought that Justin Verlander looked really good to go with now Jordan Zimmerman, Anibal Sanchez. Those top three are pretty good. The White Sox with Chris Sale. Uh, we'll see Carlos Rodon for a full year right now. Quintana's you know, consistently kind of underrated even within their own division. And I understand they've kind of done it this way and will consistently, I may still kind of doubt them because they have this little bit of a different model. But from a starting rotation standpoint, are they good enough with 
uh, Chris Medlin and, and Danny Duffy and, and Chris Young at the back end. Is that enough to be able to hang or be uh, winners in this division? I, I think it's enough to be competitive. Uh, I, when I look at that rotation, I had the same problems that you have, and they're the same problems that we had a year ago looking at the Royals rotation, which wasn't then impressive. Uh, to me, For me, um, they probably have a tough time unless somebody really takes a step forward, whether that's Ventura or, or I mean, the best candidates are, are, are Ventura and, I suppose, Duffy. Um, neither of those guys showed enough last season to make us think that they'll be stars next season. Mm-hmm. One of them might, but I think what's what's at least as likely is that they sort of muddle along for a while. I feel like we had this exact same conversation last year. I mean, literally, almost <laughs> like I use the same words, I feel like. Maybe it's deja vu, but maybe I'm just repeating myself, probably. But, you know, I think the most what's most likely is they do what they did last year. They get enough to get to the bullpen and stay close in most games and win a lot of them. And then they make a deal for a starting pitcher in, in July, um, just as they did with Cueto. Um, yeah. So I think I don't see any I don't see any Cy Young candidates on that staff unless you count Wade Davis and most people wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's an issue, no question. Yeah, definitely a storyline to keep an eye on. A little bit of a different look in that bullpen, but they bring in uh, Joaquin Soria, which is a really nice pickup for them. But the rotation will probably be a story, and a lot will come down to Jordano Ventura and him. Can he step into that role and really be the guy uh, that they want him to be? He got off to just an awful start last year. Where he got, I think his first three starts, one he left from an injury. The other two he was ejected from. This is a bad start. They don't need that from him this year. Uh, he'll be 25 years old in the middle of the season. They need him to, to more step into that top of the rotation role or be a really good, solid uh, number two. They obviously believe in him. They offered him that, that contract. He signed that five for 23 that takes him uh, through 19 with a couple of options. So uh, not a guy who was taken advantage of, certainly not, but a guy that uh, probably needs to step it up just here a little bit. I don't like that phrase. I'm disappointed that I used it, but I just I want to see him uh, get, get a little bit better. Stepping up doesn't really exist, but he can, he can be a little bit better than he's been uh, kind of moving to that next level. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up uh, this job of the podcast. Rob, I'm really glad we got a chance to do this again. It had been too long. It felt much longer. Uh, it's almost felt like a month for me since we last did one of these. Time goes really slow uh, in the offseason, especially when you don't have a Jabo podcast. For Rob Nyer, I'm CJ Nikowski. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Jabo Podcast.